Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, we're going to be having a chat about one of the most famous Egyptian pharaohs in Egypt's extremely long history, Cleopatra. Cleopatra VII, Philopato to give her a proper name, but of course she is better known to history as the simple Cleopatra, although there were many others. Anyway, Cleopatra, uh, she ruled as the queen of Ptolemaic Egypt. Now we'll come to exactly what Ptolemaic Egypt means in just a little bit. Um, and she was one of the very last pharaohs ruling in the final century before the Common Era. So before the realm fell under the total control of the Roman Empire, Cleopatra uh, was in charge and she had quite a significant role in the huge change that Egypt underwent during this period, ultimately, of course, becoming part of the Roman Empire. But so much before we start, I want to I take a broader view of things here and, and, and just sort of, I guess, remind people that so much of ancient Egyptian history is is very thoroughly misunderstood. I, I've talked before about how we tend to collapse thousands and thousands of years of history together the, the further we go back in years from the present day. And so, you know, you probably wouldn't have any issues imagining in your mind Cleopatra standing, you know, on a stone dais, watching people build the pyramids before she was then, you know, embalmed as a mummy and put in a sarcophagus. And imagining that, right, is about, it makes about as much sense as imagining Barack Obama watch Abraham Lincoln sign the Declaration of Independence. So actually, it, it, it's worse than that. It makes even less sense than that because Obama, Lincoln and the Declaration of Independence are only separated by a couple of hundred years, whereas Cleopatra ruled Egypt thousands of years after the pyramids were built. I mean, a lot of people will throw out this fact. It's absolutely true. Cleopatra's life, if you know, if you if you put it on a great big historical timeline with us and her and the construction of the pyramids, her life uh, is a shorter distance from us in years than it is from the construction of the pyramids. There are two thousand years separating us from Cleopatra, and two and a half thousand years separating Cleopatra and the construction of the pyramids. You know, four and a half thousand years ago for us. So, even when she was queen, the pyramids were. Ancient. They were ancient. They would have been for Cleopatra um, the way that the Acropolis is for us, an, an ancient relic of a bygone era. But, you know, we, we have this common misconception about ancient history. We have this tendency to bunch everyone together. We think, oh, you know, surely Socrates would have, would have hung out with Julius Caesar at some point, right? They're all kicking around the same time. And, you know, it's just not true. Our tendency to put all of you know Egypt, all these Egyptians into uh, one historical era is at least to some pretty huge inaccuracies or inaccurate uh, conceptions of history. And the other thing about this is I say all Egyptians, Cleopatra wasn't even Egyptian. She was Greek. Ptolemaic Egypt was ruled by Greeks, people who were ethnically, culturally, and linguistically Greek. Very, very different from the majority Egyptian population that they ruled. Now, this situation, Ptolemaic Egypt, dates all the way back to Alexander the Great and his conquest of Egypt, set up Alexandria as what was essentially a Greek city from where the Greek ruling class governed Egypt for centuries. And Cleopatra was as Greek as all the other Ptolemaic pharaohs, although she was actually the only one to uh, to learn and speak the Egyptian language. The rest of them pointedly refused to. 
Anyway, we'll talk about that a little bit more later on. Cleopatra's life in general, absolutely fascinating. Not what you expect, you know, because we, we, again, put her in this bucket with the pharaohs and the pyramids and the mummies and all the rest of that. Very, very different person culturally. And uh, also just a, a fascinating individual to learn about. She was uh, intelligent and courageous and very powerful as a monarch. And uh, she ruled her realm against a backdrop of, of enormous internal and external strife. Not only did she have to deal with civil war against other claimants to the throne, she also had to contend with the growing power of Rome as it transitioned from a republic towards an empire. And in doing so, in doing all of this, she hung out with some other legendarily famous uh, figures from history, including the Romans Julius Caesar, Mark Antony. She joined forces with them in... Uh, well, in more ways than one, in both the, the streets and the sheets there. And, you know, together, fighting common enemies as conflicts and wars raged on in both Egypt and Rome. So, as you can imagine, there is so much to get across with this woman's life. And as a result, we're going to split it up into two episodes. This week, we're going to talk about her younger years, the issues he had, she had securing her rule, and her alliance with Julius Caesar right up to his assassination in 44 BCE. And next year, or next year, next year, next week, uh, we will talk about what happened after that. Uh, Egypt's role in the Roman uh, in the Liberator Civil War, uh, her relationship with Mark Antony, and her eventual and very famous death. Although she probably didn't die from a snake bite, as uh, as, as you might have heard. Um, throughout both episodes, we're going to talk about why she has ended up as this enormously famous figure from Egyptian history, and of course her political and cultural legacy that that she's left through to this very day. So, I want to thank Scott Russell and a couple of other alert listeners whose names I've lost track of. Sorry about that. Um, they've all suggested Cleopatra as a topic, and uh, given the feedback I've had recently from people wanting, you know, more in-depth looks at large historical people uh, and events, I thought we'd finally get across Cleopatra in a two-part episode. So, thanks everyone who's uh, who's written to suggest her as a topic. But let's get to it here off we go getting underway with the story of cleopatra one of the last and most famous of all of the egyptian pharaohs here we go we're going all the way back here we're going all the way back to 69 bce nice remember as we're uh, we're, we're before the common era here we're bce we're counting years down not up so bc uh, 69 bce is followed by 68 bce and so on I mean, look established listeners they'll know the drill by now as with any uh, ancient history uh but it can be a bit confusing so uh, worth reminding people that anyway 69 BCE, Cleopatra is born to the Ptolemaic pharaoh Ptolemy Twelfth, And we're not sure who else. Uh, we are jumping in at the deep end here talking about Ptolemaic family trees. So let's zoom out a little bit and explain what's going on before we get into the tangled web that was uh, Cleopatra's parentage. In 332 BCE, Alexander the Great conquered Egypt, which was uh, at the time ruled over by the Persians, right? And when Alexander died, his empire fell apart and his successors fought over their individual parts. And Egypt ended up in the hands of one of Alexander's generals, whose name was Ptolemy, Ptolemy I. Now, Ptolemy crowned himself as a pharaoh. He set up shop in Alexandria, the city that Alexander had founded in Egypt. And it's still there today, of course. And for the next three centuries or so, Egypt was, was ruled by Greeks living in a Greek city, speaking the Greek language, and never really abandoning Greek culture. And look, as you can imagine, when a, you know another dominant conquering culture comes into an established land with people, language, culture, all the rest of it, and sort of, you know, takes it over, particularly considering how wealthy uh, and, and prosperous and fertile Egypt was, from an agricultural standpoint at least, uh, there were issues, there was strife, there was conflict between, uh, b- b- between the Greeks and the Egyptians that lived there, and... 
you know, broadly speaking, outside of the first couple of Ptolemies, the monarchy wasn't hugely successful. A lot of the Ptolemies, a lot of the kings that and the pharaohs that ruled in the wake of, of Alexander's general, they didn't do a very good job. And, uh, you know, as I say, the, this this period of Egyptian history was, was fraught with strife and conflict between the Greeks and Egyptians. Um, but by the time we get to Cleopatra's era, right, with the uh, there, are, there are some certain, I guess, cultural. There's some cultural blending that's gone on, at least right at the top of the of the food chain here with uh, with with these Greek pharaohs, at least adopting some aspects of Egyptian culture in order to ingratiate them to the people that they were ruling a little bit more. So Ptolemaic pharaohs, all the descendants of Ptolemy the first, they did adopt some some Egyptian customs, some cultures. They involved themselves in Egyptian religion and art. And even took on some Egyptian traditions, such as, most notably, marrying their siblings. And this tradition, it continued through the centuries until we get to Ptolemy Twelfth, Cleopatra's dad. And this brings us back to the identity of her mum, who is thought to be Cleopatra V, or maybe Cleopatra VI, or maybe Cleopatra V and VI were the same person. And her mum might have actually been her sister or her aunt who in turn was probably born of incest as a daughter of Ptolemy the Ninth or Tenth, who were brothers, both of whom were married to their sisters, who were two different women named Cleopatra, one of whom was probably married to both of them at different points. So, you know, we've actually got a relatively simple situation with Cleopatra's parentage because if you go back just one or two generations, you've got four siblings, two of them named Ptolemy, two of them named Cleopatra, three marriages between them, and that was pretty typical of Ptolemaic Egypt. So, bottom line is this, we don't have the best idea of Cleopatra's exact parentage, but we do know, right, that she ended up being Cleopatra the Seventh, and we know that she was well educated as a child, like any wealthy Greek child would have been back then, uh, studying, at the fa- uh, studying at the famous Library of Alexandria, of course, before its destruction. Um, and before she turned 18, she actually ended up as something of a co-ruler alongside her dad, who was dealing with a whole lot of issues with Rome. Now, as I said before, the Ptolemaic dynasty hadn't done a great job of governing Egypt, and for the last couple of centuries, Rome had been looking to take advantage of uh, the the issues that uh, the Ptolemaic Egypt was having, both internally and externally, and was slowly but surely sort of leading Egypt in towards towards becoming a client state, effectively. You know, not quite a protectorate, not quite something that was direct, a place that was directly relying on Rome, but certainly there was a fair bit of Roman influence, right, uh, and an interference within Egyptian politics. Egypt, there's a good reason for this. Egypt was wealthy, it was prosperous, it was a rich target for annexation. But Ptolemy, at this point, right, when he'd been, uh, he'd, he'd sort of been relying on Rome for, for aid in, in, in various issues that he was having there, He'd been buying off powerful Romans like Pompey and Julius Caesar um, in order to try to stop them from effectively annexing Egypt altogether. He was trying to pay them for their services rather than having them just come in and say, well, listen, we're doing all the heavy lifting. We're just going to have Egypt become ours anyway. But even with uh, Ptolemy Twelfth attempting to buy these powerful Romans off, Rome nonetheless interfered very, very heavily in Ptolemy XII's rule, even during Cleopatra's childhood, leading to some some pretty turbulent times. Uh, Ptolemy XII was exiled at one point, travelling to Rome to drum up further support from people like Pompey, people on his payroll, uh, so he could be returned to power. Um, He actually brought Cleopatra with him to Rome, 
Uh, and it was interestingly, it was there that she first met Mark Antony, which she was just 14 years old, but we'll talk more about that next week, of course. Anyway, Ptolemy the Twelfth, eventually, after you know, some very turbulent times, he was restored to the Egyptian throne, ruled alongside Cleopatra, but he didn't last long because he ended up dying in 51 BCE when Cleopatra was just 18 years of age. She became the queen in her own right, effectively. She was the co-ruler alongside her dad, and so she stepped up and uh, and plonked the crown on her head, sat down on the throne, and started ruling independently as a sole ruler. However, Egyptian custom demanded that she, as a woman, had a man ruling alongside her. So this was one of the first issues that confronted her as a, you know as a young queen at the age of eighteen. Is that the people that she was she was ruling over demanded that there was someone that would rule at her side? And you'll never guess who ended up being her co-monarch. It was yes, that's right. It was in fact her brother, whose name was can you guess Ptolemy. Ptolemy the Thirteenth. He was just thirteen years old. He was pretty useless. So Cleopatra, he she she took the opportunity. She took advantage of his uselessness and took charge really to deal with the issues that were facing Europe again as a sole ruler with her brother, well brother husband now, we think, uh, ruling in name only effectively. And there were plenty of issues. There were plenty of issues for her to deal with as a, you know, as a, as a young queen. Uh, drought had led to widespread famine amongst the population. Uh, on top of that, she inherited not just her dad's throne and her dad's problems, but also her dad's debt to Rome. Um, so she's really facing an uphill battle. But I tell you what, she's equal to the task. Don't you even worry about it because she's got a very clearly brain in her head. And she's also got a real gift for politics and diplomacy and charm. And she's also got a real thing for putting on a show. She loved to get all tizzed up, hold a parade, make a big performance of travelling around, you know, on a, on a pleasure barge or dressing richly to impress people. So she was very able to win the hearts and minds of not just the people she ruled, but the people she had to deal with as a ruler as well, you know, other whether it was visiting diplomats or other nobles, whatever else. So she's doing a very, very good job, even at her young age. A lot of historical characterizations of Cleopatra tend to revolve around, you know, her beauty or her being a seductress that meddled in Roman politics by seducing Caesar and later Mark Antony. And this is a pretty unfair characterization. It dates all the way back to ancient Rome and the historians who wrote about her then, you know, making her seem like this meddlesome woman. And look, you know, I mean, sure, there's no doubting that Cleopatra used her feminine wiles when it suited her purposes. But that does kind of overlook the fact that she was a very gifted diplomat. She was a very skilled politician. She could be charming when she needed to be, but also could be hard-hearted and, and ruthless and, and, and pragmatic when she needed to be as well. She was intelligent and clever. She spoke around 10 different languages, including Egyptian, bucking the trend of all the Ptolemaic rulers refusing to learn the language of the people that they ruled, as I say. But look, all I'm trying to say here is to look beyond the popular portrayal of Cleopatra as someone who just effectively slept her way to the top. As we'll discover, she was a, a powerful and influential and very successful monarch in her own right long before she jumped into bed with old jewels. Anyway, back in 51 BCE, age of 18, she's thrust onto the throne, quickly sidelines her little brother husband, who is around 10 at this age, 10 at this point, 10 years old, and she takes charge in ruling Egypt. She was fiercely independent of her advisors. She often acted unilaterally to fix the problems that she and her realm faced, and she did a very bloody good job in doing so. Uh, additionally, her proficiency with languages and her natural charm meant that she could easily talk to visiting diplomats without the need for translators, uh, and, and in doing so, improved Egypt's international standing because she was seen as a very, uh, a very relatable and again a very charming leader. So, so people were, you know, she, she there were a fair few people who were, who were a pretty big fan of it. In the years after she took the throne, Cleopatra became a successful, independent ruler, even at a time when other powers like Rome were taking a uh, 
a very keen interest in Egyptian affairs. However, not everyone liked her independence. Most of all, of course, her younger brother Ptolemy XIII and his powerful entourage of advisors. Cleopatra styled herself very deliberately as the sole ruler of Egypt, even after marrying her brother Ptolemy. And those who were close to young Ptolemy, or those who made themselves close to him because they saw a young boy as being much easier to manipulate and control than this uh, this young, independent, strong, headstrong woman, they hoped to depose her and plant Ptolemy on the throne as the sole ruler of Egypt. I mean, it makes sense, right? Why are they doing this? He's just a kid. He's not strong. He's not hard to control like Cleopatra. And he'd be a much better puppet ruler for this cabal of advisors that surrounded him. So by the time we get to 49 BCE, Egypt is actually on the brink of a civil war. Despite the fact that Cleopatra has done a pretty good job ruling the joint and you know taking care of some of the problems that she inherited from her old man, there are lots of people who want to see Ptolemy on the throne by himself without his sister, to, sister ruling the roost, right? And so this civil, this this you know what, what has become known to history as the Alexandrian civil war between Cleopatra and Ptolemy looks like it's going to kick off and. You know, it's not the only civil war that's going on. It's important to note that this is taking place against the backdrop of the Roman civil war, which also kicked off uh, in, in 49 BCE, which pitted, pitted Julius Caesar against Pompey, as, again, in the, in the very late stages of the Roman Republic here. So while this uh, conflict is, is brewing between the two siblings, Cleopatra and, and Ptolemy, Pompey actually appealed to the royal couple for help in the civil war back in Rome, and they agreed. They took his side and they gave him the assistance that he asked for. Remember, Rome has a heavy interest in uh, in Egyptian inter- internal affairs. Uh, Ptolemy and Cleopatra, despite the fact that they were divided and didn't like each other at all, they certainly agreed with one another in wanting to keep Rome on side. And so they sent ships and soldiers to Ptolemy because it looked like Ptolemy was probably going to beat Julius Caesar at this point. Obviously, I mean, don't want to spoil the ending for it. He didn't, but uh, the uh, the Egyptian um, the, the Egyptian monarchs here were, were very keen to stay on side with Ptolemy. They sent ships, they sent soldiers to fight alongside Pompey in the Roman Civil War, and this proved to be an interesting move, as we'll discover. Um, but it wasn't long after these troops were sent off that Ptolemy finally gained the upper hand over Cleopatra and forced her to flee Alexandria, leaving him in charge. I mean, look, I say he did this. He didn't do it. He's 13 at this stage. It was mainly the people around him that engineered the whole thing in his name. But anyway, after these two have sent troops off to uh, to Pompey, uh, Ptolemy is able to, to make his, his move, step up, and, and sort of seize power in Europe and, and, and cast his sister out into exile. So Cleopatra, she starts travelling around the region, around the, uh, the, the eastern Mediterranean, attempting to shore up support to reinvade Egypt and reclaim her throne from her brother in a conflict that, as I say, is has become known to history as the Alexandrian Civil War. And she did a very good job of drumming up support too. She gathered a sizable army together, travelled back to Egypt in, uh, in 48 BCE, and she's ready to take the fight to Ptolemy. She camped out in the Nile Delta, but before this conflict could come to a head with her brother, we need to go back to the interesting move that I mentioned before and get across that one. Cleopatra and Ptolemy had taken Pompey's side against Caesar, as I said, because it looked like Pompey was was in a, a commanding position and was probably going to win. But even the help of the Egyptian co-monarchs at, the, at this time, when they offered the help at least, wasn't enough. And as you may know, on the 9th of August in 48 BCE, Pompey's army was crushed 
by Caesar in the decisive Battle of Pharsalus. Now, Pompey decided, uh, quite reasonably, you would have thought, in the wake of this battle to flee to Egypt. After all, the ruling Ptolemy had shown him to be an ally of of Pompey, probably going to be a safe place for him to come back and regroup and, and again get ready to take the fight back to Caesar. And he couldn't have been more wrong about this, Pompey, because seeing that the prevailing winds were now blowing Caesar's way, seeing that it was now Julius Caesar who was on top of the Roman Civil War, Ptolemy's advisors quickly switched sides. They decided to ambush and assassinate Pompey when he arrived in Egypt. And then just to show old Jules how they had turned their coats, they cut off Pompey's head and sent it to Caesar. Now, Ptolemy's advisors thought this was a very, very smart thing to do. They thought that this would show them off as allies of the victorious Caesar, show that they had, you know, they were picking the winning side here, they were backing the winning horse. And also that it would demonstrate the power of the young pharaoh in uh, you know, seizing the initiative and getting on top of, uh, of, of both domestic and international affairs with this, uh, this civil war with Cleopatra and, more broadly speaking, the conflict that's going on in Rome. And they couldn't have been more wrong because it did none of those things and what it did instead was really, really piss Caesar off. He was outraged at the murder of Pompey of his of his enemy. I mean, look, remember, Caesar and Pompey used to be allies. So Caesar decides that it's this, that this is not going to fly. He decides that he has to personally intervene in Egypt, right, to get this uh, to get things back on track there. So he himself sailed to Alexandria with his armies, about 4,000 troops he brings along with him, marched on the royal palaces there and took up residence. Now, there were already... This is very complicated. There were already Roman Roman aligned troops, sort of, in Egypt that had been stationed there uh, under under the you know under Roman command. It's difficult to say exactly where their allegiances lay at this point, but with Caesar turning up with four thousand more Roman troops, it was not very difficult for the Romans to seize power and take over. Alexandria, and therefore kind of take over Egypt effectively with Caesar mounting this more or less bloodless coup as he, uh, uh, you know, marched into Alexandria and seized the capital. So rather than demonstrate his power as the rule of Egypt, Ptolemy instead had Caesar march on his capital, take it uncontested and force him out of Alexandria. So now Caesar is large and in charge. He immediately demands that both Ptolemy and Cleopatra disband their armies and figure out their problems together, come back and reconcile and get on with the business of ruling Egypt. And it's pretty funny to think about that because, you know, at this point, Cleopatra is 21. Ptolemy is like 13 or 14. So this is basically like a dad coming in. Caesar's 52. He's come in, took away their toys and told them both to get on with each other or they're both going to be in big trouble. Cleopatra, however, she took a slightly different tack when it came to dealing with Caesar's occupation of Alexandria. She knows, she's heard of Caesar's reputation. He, he, she knows that he, you know, he doesn't mind rooting powerful women here and there. He's had affairs with other queens and, uh, and, and high-ranking noble women in the past. So she decides to take advantage of this. You might have heard this very famous story. I'm not sure if it's true or not, but apparently in order to sneak into Alexandria and more specifically into Caesar's chambers in the palace, Cleopatra dressed herself up all nice, like she's, you know, heading out for a night in the town, and then either rolled herself up in a rug or got inside a big sack 
and was smuggled into the palace and taken directly to Caesar that way. Now, you know, I mean, she might have just been able to, you know, walk into the palace in Alexandria. There's every chance that she just did that because she was, you know, the pharaoh of Egypt. But according to the Greek historian Plutarch, apparently she hid herself inside this sack to get in. Anyway, look, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter how she got in. Let me tell you this. However she managed it, she got inside the palace, got a personal audience with Jules, and then had a very personal audience with Jules. That was that. According to most accounts, they rooted basically then and there and struck up a connection that was, well, actually, look, it was more than just romantic and sexual. It was very powerfully political as well. I mean, when poor old, well, I was going to say poor old, but poor young Ptolemy turns up to meet with Caesar as part of the negotiations for him to reconcile with his sister, he's spitting chips because, I mean, think about it, right? Not only has his sister seized the political advantage by getting Caesar on side like this, you know, this old bloke's rooting his sister, Gross. And on top of that, Caesar's also bloody cut his lunch because Cleopatra's also Ptolemy's wife. So Caesar's done Ptolemy real dirty here, rooting his sister, rooting his wife at the same time. And on top of that, Cleopatra's done Ptolemy dirty because now she's way ahead. She's so far in with the Romans or, you know, maybe Caesar's so far in with her. But what I'm trying to say here is that Cleopatra has basically just pulled Ptolemy's pants down in a figurative sense. She's probably pulled you know, Julius Caesar's pants down in a literal sense. But Ptolemy, he's been, you know, he's been completely undone here. He's been completely outmaneuvered and outplayed by his sister. And uh, as a result, he approaches these negotiations from a place of enormous disadvantage. He's as cross as a frog in a sock. He's spewing that, you know, Cleopatra's outmaneuvered him like this. And it is effectively the the end of any, you know, short-lived attempt to reconcile the siblings. Ptolemy, after realising that Cleopatra has stolen this march on him and, and now Caesar is, you know, overwhelmingly in support of Cleopatra as, uh, as a co-monarch here, Ptolemy, he heads out to the streets of Alexandria with all of his allies and he attempts not to put too fine a point on it, he attempts to induce the population into rioting by, you know, sharing the, the scandal, the outrage, what, what's going on in the palace. He spreads the story about, about you know, about how Cleopatra and, and, and Caesar have shacked up in in more ways than one, and he tries to turn Alexandria against the two. Caesar, however, is not to be outdone here. Absolutely not. He's one step ahead of him. As an angry crowd gathers Caesar, he addresses them, calms them down, explains the situation, and then arrests Ptolemy and effectively hands Cleopatra the Egyptian throne back by, you know, the 4,000 Roman troops that he had with him in Alexandria. So, Cleopatra made a very savvy alliance with Julius Caesar. Caesar came into Alexandria hoping to reconcile the siblings, and she, by uh, getting Caesar on side in the way that she did, secured her throne with the backing of a very, very powerful international figure and the thousands of troops that he had in her city as well. So she's done well. Ptolemy, right, is in a terrible position. He manages to escape Alexandria. He either escaped, was broken out, or was just released by Caesar. Not 100% sure on that one. Anyway, he, he gets out of Alexandria, joins forces with Caesar's enemies, which now includes, I mean, tens of thousands of troops. Around 20,000 troops are gathered around the capital, besieging it. Caesar has no shortage of enemies. So despite the fact that Cleopatra has been 
affirmed by Caesar as, you know, the sole ruler of Egypt, effectively. It's not a great result for her once Ptolemy gathers his forces and besieges besieges her capital. She's, I mean, look, it's not it's not the end of the world for her, certainly. You know, she's, I mean, she's sharing her bed with Julius bloody Caesar and this bloke's one of the most powerful people on earth. And on top of that, he's, he's now determined to beat Ptolemy and his allies as well. So from a personal standpoint, you know, despite the Alexandria being besieged here, Cleopatra's not doing too badly, and she and Caesar work together to come up with a solution to deal with Ptolemy. Caesar calls in reinforcements. Uh, he sends off messengers to uh, to other, you know, Roman armies that he, he's still in charge of. And then the two of them just play the waiting game. Uh, his troops defend the city for months. These 4,000 uh, troops that he brought with them, they make sure that Alexandria wasn't overrun. The siege wasn't able to, to succeed there. And they just wait. They just wait for Caesar's troops to arrive. And I'm sure Cleopatra and Caesar found ways to keep themselves busy while they were waiting. And eventually, Caesar's troops do arrive. They arrive in early 47 BCE. And uh, in in doing so, they bring the armies of Cleopatra and Caesar to around 21,000 strong. Still short of the 29,000 that Ptolemy now had outside the, uh, outside the city. But... The 21,000 that we're talking about here, much of them, I mean, we're, you know, we're talking about Roman legions here, the most highly trained and skilled warriors on the planet. And so when the Battle of the Nile takes place between the forces of Cleopatra and Caesar and Ptolemy, their enemy, the Battle of the Nile in early 47 BCE was decisive. And it ended the Alexandrian civil war then and there between Cleopatra and Ptolemy. And for very good reason. Not only was Ptolemy's army soundly defeated, Ptolemy actually met his end during the battle. He drowned and died. He was, uh, we're not exactly sure on the circumstance of his, of his drowning. He was on a boat, either fleeing the battle or was attempting to approach Caesar and Cleopatra and their forces to attempt to parlay. Uh, but his boat capsized. He was drowned. And that was that. Whatever the reason, however he ended up dying, that's the end of his army. That's the end of him. And so the Alexandrian civil war had come to an end with Cleopatra as the clear and uncontested victor. So with the conflict resolved in her favour, Cleopatra now, once again, was the sole ruler of Egypt. Sort of. Because, once again, due to the overwhelming cultural bias against a, bias against a sole female ruler, Cleopatra had to have a male co-ruler. And again, due to the demands of Egyptian culture when it comes to their pharaohs, she married, can you guess... No, not Caesar. Uh, a good guess, though. Uh, she did continue to share her bed with him even after a new marriage. Caesar's going on, you know, Caesar's going about cutting any, everyone's lunch here. No, she married another one of her brothers, who is also named Ptolemy, uh, become known as now as Ptolemy the Fourteenth, and he is just twelve. Cleopatra is twenty-two, but uh, she sticks to the same handbook as before. However, in very quickly sidelining her young brother husband. And is she's again more or less able to just rule in her own right without her younger brother getting in the way. So she spends early 47 BCE just chilling, just big chilling with Julius Caesar. The two of them might have even take a, taken a pleasure cruise uh, down the Nile together. Not sure about that. May have happened, might be apocryphal. But ultimately, Caesar couldn't stick around forever. He had helped to end Egypt's political turmoil in Cleopatra's favour. He had se- secured some stability in Egypt. 
Uh, and you know the personal gain for him was he had he now had a very solid ally in charge of the place. Remember before we had uh, the Egyptians sending troops to Pompey and then switching their sides to Caesar. Caesar could leave Egypt knowing that Cleopatra was very likely to stay, uh, you know, in his on his side of the fence, make sure that uh, that he had the the rich and prosperous and bounteous lands of Egypt more or less backing him as Rome's interest in the region continued to grow. So. The reason uh, he had to head off, uh, he was having more issues. I mean, don't forget, Rome's still in the middle of a, of a civil war here and, and, and Caesar is one of the main players in that. So he has to head off. There's some trouble that he has to, to deal with there in, in Anatolia, deal with new issues there. But it's thought there was actually another reason that he wanted to get away from Egypt and, and more specifically get away from Cleopatra. And that reason is that Cleopatra was pregnant. She had fallen pregnant in 48 BCE. She was obviously showing in 47 BCE. And Caesar didn't want to be around when the child was born. Now, you think, well, why not? Bit of a dirty dog move there from Caesar. What's his, what's his issue here? Well, I mean, he's married, mate. He's, been, he's had a long string of high-profile affairs with all these other women. Cleopatra's is the latest one of them. But he's married. He's married to this woman named Calpurnia back in Rome, who was his third or fourth wife, we're not sure. And she'd put up with all these various affairs over the years, and he thought it would be a bit much to stick around while Cleopatra gave birth to his son. Very supportive, Jules, old mate there, and so he buggered off in April. And look, the, the relationship that was shared by Cleopatra and Caesar was 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 it, it, very interesting, absolutely fascinating, because obviously it was it was romantic, and obviously it was a sexual one as well. But it seemed to have gone a lot further than that, because. Despite their age difference, the, the, the two of them genuinely seemed to just get on very well, not just as lovers and friends, but also as, as leaders, as, as politicians. They had a mutual respect for one another that extended well outside their bedroom, and Caesar, backing Cleopatra as the pharaoh of Egypt, had a lot more behind it than just, you know, the two of them hopping into bed together. Cleopatra is, again, often portrayed as this seductress who bent Caesar to her will, but the truth seems to have been that the two of them considered each other friends and, you know, political allies, despite him, you know, bailing after knocking her up. But anyway, Cleopatra, once Caesar leaves, she's in a, she's in a reasonable spot. She gets on with the business of ruling Egypt on her own terms. Once again, you know, as her little brother, who's just a child, is easy enough to sideline. With Caesar and the might of his Roman legions backing her reign in Egypt, Cleopatra's rule was more or less secured. And once again, she did a very good job of things, despite, I will remind you, being heavily pregnant and then also ultimately giving birth. This didn't really get in the way of her governing her realm very effectively indeed. She gave birth in June, on the 23rd of June, 47. Uh, she gave birth to a son who she named very inventively Ptolemy, uh, although he's commonly known to history as Caesarian. And uh, Caesarian was the only known biological son of Julius Caesar. Now, Caesar didn't make too much of a fuss about the birth of his son, given his childless marriage to Calpurnia. He didn't really want to, you know, poke that hornet's nest there. But Cleopatra, she didn't bother hiding at all. She made a great big song and dance about having had Caesar's kid. And uh, she seemed to be determined to find a way to make sure that uh, Caesarion would, would be her successor. Something which, you know, as you can imagine with the tangled webs of the Ptolemaic dynasties, was anything but assured. Her newfound motherhood 
As I mentioned before, was not an impediment to her rule, however, and Cleopatra continued to be a very effective pharaoh with her sideline brother-husband ruling in name only, really. This kid was just doing absolutely nothing else. Um, but he did come with Cleopatra uh, on a visit to Rome uh, just before 45 BCE to visit Caesar and strengthen the already very close ties between Rome and Egypt. Now, it's at this point, it look, I don't want to get into a huge argument about this with people, but it's at this point that I think you can make a good argument to say that this is when Egypt became a more formal client state of Rome. Obviously, the entire period around when we're talking, is it's filled with turmoil and you can argue about the different roles of different rulers and realms, whatever. But Cleopatra's visit to Caesar resulted in an official legal proclamation that she and her brother were both a friend and ally of the Roman people. And, you know, this so closely aligned Egypt with Rome as to effectively make it a client nation. But look, it suited both of them, honestly. It gave Caesar access to the wealth and the riches of Egypt with a ruler that he was closely connected to. And it gave Cleopatra security in her rule over Egypt thanks to Roman backing. So Cleopatra, she's having a great time over in Rome, chilling, hanging out, spending time with Caesar, you know, openly sleeping with him, by the way. I mean, they, they didn't bother hiding the fact that they were back at it together. And this didn't go down too well in Rome. You know, people maybe had been had been sort of turning a blind eye to it in, in, in Egypt and Alexandria, but back in Rome, people really, really didn't like it. Roman society at the time didn't think much of bigamy. Um, and both, both Caesar and Cleopatra put people offside as a result, which is not a deal for Caesar. I mean, you know, he's already got enough enemies as it is. You know what's coming up for him in 44 BC, just a, just a year or so down the track. But Cleopatra made her presence felt in Rome and may have even influenced Caesar into experimenting with the idea of establishing a new government type in Rome in the midst of the political chaos of the very late Roman Republic. There's a there's a famous story uh, about something that, uh, that that Caesar did around this point. Um, the, the Hellenistic monarchy, right, this form of government like Cleopatra's in Egypt, it obviously wasn't a very popular form of government in Republican Rome, but Caesar, who was in the middle of this term as a dictator, he actually tested the waters of establishing a monarchy while Cleopatra was in Rome, perhaps at her urging. Perhaps she actually, you know, gave her gave him the idea of testing out the, the style of monarchy that, that worked for her in, uh, uh, in Egypt. He staged a public scene where Mark Antony attempted to crown him, right, with, with an actual physical crown, uh, and then he made a great big fuss being, no, 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 I couldn't possibly take the crown. No, 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 absolutely not. That's not how we do things here. And this was a classic unless move. You know, this was designed to take the temperature of the Roman public and see if they might be interested in a Hellenistic style king after all. You know, maybe if while he's saying, no, no, I don't want the crown of people, like, no, 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 go and take it. It's a good idea. You know, then that would give him information about maybe the sort of new government that he could set up in Rome with him as potentially, you know, a Hellenistic style uh, king there. But it didn't go over so well. He was mocked for it, for it viciously by people like Cicero. So it, it didn't go anywhere. But look, Cleopatra, all the same, you know, she was a, uh, she was a, a very well-known figure in Rome at the time and, and closely connected to Caesar, as you can expect. And uh, she she stuck around. She might have stuck around. She might have left. Um, it, 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 we're not sure if she either stayed the entire time or left and then, and then came back. But we do know that in 44 BCE, she is in Rome, whether she's left or not, come back, whatever. And she was there on the 15th of March in Rome when Caesar was assassinated. Now, obviously, she would have been upset that Caesar had been killed, not just her lover, but a friend and a, and a, and a close political ally. But I mentioned that 
Cleopatra could be very pragmatic when she needed to be. And in the wake of Caesar's death, that pragmatism is exactly what she put on display. Caesar's been killed. Terrible. So sad. Boo-hoo. Tears streaming down her face. How will I recover? Anyway, here's my next move. What did she do? Don't forget who her son is here. It's not, I mean, it's not, not just her son, is it? It's the son of Julius Caesar as well. In what would have been an absolutely sick power play, if it had actually come off here, Cleopatra stayed behind in Rome after Caesar's assassination and attempted to have Caesarian succeed Caesar as his heir. She attempted to effectively launch Caesarian. I mean, Caesarian's like three, right? And she's attempting to launch this kid's political uh, career by having him recognised as the successor to Julius Caesar. Now, I don't want to disappoint you, but it didn't work. Instead, Caesar, who had you know appointed an heir, Octavian, his grandnephew, uh, Octavian was obviously recognised as Caesar's successor, and alongside Mark Antony, he went on to fight the Liberator Civil War to avenge the death of Caesar. But look, Cleopatra, she she near well, I don't want to say she nearly did it, but she definitely gave it a good go. She definitely tried to make herself and her dynasty and, and her offspring more more relevant to history than you can possibly imagine by having. Caesarian succeed Caesar didn't work. Anyway, Cleopatra still maintained a very prominent role in the political fallout from the assassination of Julius Caesar. She had a big role in the conflict uh, in in the Liberator Civil War that was that that fought was fought with uh, Octavian, Mark Antony on one side, and you know the conspirators against Caesar on the other. But we will talk about that in much greater detail, of course, next week because that is the second part of the of the story of uh, of Cleopatra's life. Anyway. Once she realised that she wasn't going to be able to secure anything much for Caesarian in Rome, Cleopatra packed her bags and headed back to Egypt in mid-April of 44 BCE. And once she was there, she took one final and rather drastic step to secure her ongoing rule of Egypt. Now that her primary ally in Rome was dead, perhaps she thought that she needed to shore up all the power and control that she could and make sure there weren't going to be any snakes in the grass that were going to come out and try to usurp her or overthrow her or anything else like that now that she'd lost some of Rome's backing. And who do you think she deemed to be the greatest threat to her rule as queen? Well, she'd already been driven out of Alexandria once by her little brother Ptolemy Thirteenth. And now she's married to another little brother, Ptolemy XIV, and she is damn sure it's not going to happen again. You've probably already guessed what she did. Once she was back in Egypt, she organised the assassination of her little brother, Ptolemy XIV, who was just 15 years old when he was poisoned to death with aconite on Cleopatra's orders. So there's that ruthlessness. There's that pragmatism. She did whatever it took to secure her throne. And even if she couldn't have Caesarian recognised as the successor of Caesar, she sure could have him recognised as the successor of Ptolemy the Fourteenth. Caesarian became Ptolemy the Fifteenth, the co-ruler of Egypt with his mother at the age of just three. And without wanting to spoil too much of next week's episode, he ended up being the very last pharaoh of ancient Egypt. But... That's a story for next week when we cover Cleopatra's role in the Liberator Civil War, her relationship with Mark Antony, and, of course, her untimely death. Although, as I said before, it wasn't after being bitten by a snake.
But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story, well, half the story at least, of Cleopatra. And I do hope you'll tune in next week as we conclude the life story of this incredible woman, this uh, this queen from 2,000 years ago. And look, just getting across all this and, and the research that I've done, I've learned so, so much about someone who, you know, again, we've all heard of but don't actually know that much about. So I do hope you learned a thing or two. And next week, we'll be back to learn even more about this uh, this fascinating figure from ancient history. Anyway, that is that going to close out the show with the normal boring housekeeping announcements, of course. Halfhousehistory.net contact form there on the website. Also link to the merch shop if you want to buy some stuff. Uh, again, I'm looking to update the merch shop with new ideas. Haven't had too many sent in. So if you've got any ideas, look, honestly, at this point, like, it's that flexible. The platform on TeePublic's fantastic. It's that good that if you kind of want almost like a custom half-ass history t-shirt made with a design or a quote or a picture on it that you think would be good, just tell me and I'll put it up. And if it sells well, it'll stay there. And, you know, I'd, I'd appreciate any ideas uh, that, that people have for uh, for merch, uh, you know, and again, it doesn't have to be a t-shirt, it can be a mug or, I mean, you've gone on there and you've seen all the stuff that's available there. It's all it's all pretty good. So uh, thanks to people who are buying stuff uh, on the merch store. The merch store, it's a great way to support the show, but an even better way to support the show is on Patreon. Thank you to everyone who's supporting me on Patreon. We've got a bunch of new ones, of course, this week as well. There really has been a huge uptick in uh, in support since I announced the Patreon merch. Very, very proud of the Patreon merch. It's not going to be available anywhere else. If you want your hands on that exclusive and, and incredible drawing that was done by Jessica from Inkland Customs, whether it's on a print or, a, or on a mug or on a T-shirt, the only way to get it is on Patreon. And you get a bunch of other benefits as well, behind the scenes, uh, show notes, uh, all the burps and farts and uh, uncut stuff from the uncut episodes and early access to episodes as well, just in case you just can't wait. So go head over to patreon.com slash half history if you want to get across that. Uh, but even if you're not a Patreon supporter, hey, thanks very much. It's good to have you along, especially if you're still listening. The true fans listen all the way through to the end. I know, I, I can say, I know the people who leave and you're not one of them, so I appreciate you still being here. Thanks very much. Anyway, back here next week with more of, uh, more of uh, well, I say more, the rest of Cleopatra's life story, and I hope you join me then. But until then, leaving you with a question posed on Reddit about our good friend Cleopatra. This one comes to us from Reddit historian The Noided Nugget, who asks, Is Cleopatra still coming at you? And if so, why is it taking her so long to arrive? Thank you.